Thank you, Jerry. It's good to be back up here, although in a very different role this morning. Dr. Jacobs is in Florida with Deb and the kids and the grandkids and enjoying. He's preparing to be back here next week where he'll start in the book of Mark. So if you want to get a jump start on next week, uh, he'll, we'll be covering the book of Mark. But today we're going to cover the entire book of Obadiah, all 21 chapters. Uh, go ahead and turn there, and while you're turning there, uh, this is the shortest book in the Bible. Uh, you can find it right after the book of Amos. It contains the shortest of all introductions, only two words in the Hebrew that mean vision of Obadiah. The name Obadiah itself means servant of Yahweh. Now, we don't know for sure, because the author says nothing about himself, we don't know for sure who actually wrote the book, but one thing we do know um, is that the book was written during the time of an invasion against Jerusalem. Now, there are four major invasions of Jerusalem that are recorded in Scripture, and two of them, the Edomites, of whom the book Obadiah concerns, participated in. Um, the first one would have been in Second Chronicles 12. That would be the invasion of the Philistines and the Arabians on the city of Jerusalem. The other is one we're more familiar with, the invasion of the Babylonians in 586 BC, which of course led to the exile. So more than likely, the book of Obadiah was written during one of those two invasions. Now, it's a book that begins with a call from God, a call from God to the nations to destroy the nation of Edom for their guilt. This call is then followed by God's word to Edom, warning them of his judgment against them for their sin. And then the book concludes with the consequences of Edom's judgment. And not only for them, but also we'll see for God's own chosen people who, of course, also had sinned. So please stand as we read God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go out against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave at least some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that everyone will be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, do not on the day of his misfortune, 
and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot in their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down your fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will also be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be, set a, uh, will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them. So that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain. Also, they will possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for being present with us. We thank you for this book, Obadiah. We thank you that your mind is certainly not ours because this is difficult to understand. But I pray for our time this morning as we study. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would use this book to change us, to conform us into your image. We pray for the one who preaches, Father. We do not need him. We need you. And we ask these sayings in the name of Jesus. Amen. Edom has prospered and Judah has been crushed. Dr. Joseph Nally of Third Mill Ministries, and that is one of the ministries that Grace supports each and every month. Dr. Nally says that the moral order of the world appeared to have been overthrown by lawless forces. But the prophet Obadiah was raised with a message of God's sovereign justice in order to strengthen his people's weakened faith. The book of Obadiah is really a message. It's a message of hope, a message that confirms to the Israelites that God will keep his promises. And the destruction of Jerusalem is an act that proves that God, that God does keep his promises. Moses says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come among you if you obey the Lord your God. And then Moses records verse after verse of the many blessings that flow from obedience. But then in verse 15, he transitions from blessings to curses. But it shall come upon you that if you do not obey the Lord your God, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And for 53 verses, Moses describes consequence after consequence for disobedience. And in verse 49, we see one consequence that we'll be discussing. 
The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, a nation whose language you shall not understand, and the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth until the other. Moses had warned the Israelites that persistent disobedience to his word would result in this day of disaster that is spoken of in Obadiah against Edom. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all of them wrote books stressing the importance of obedience. And that disobedience to the law would result in their, in their disaster. God was not silent, though, in the days leading up to this destruction. Out of his long-suffering compassion for his covenant people, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell the people how to avoid losing their land. Listen to 2 Chronicles thirty-six fifteen. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. God kept his promise, and that sets the stage for Obadiah's message of hope for restoration. Verse 1 of Obadiah says it's a prophecy concerning Edom. Edom was the neighboring nation to Judah. They were wealthy due to their... um, copper mines and the smelting operations that came along with that. They were wealthy because they had very productive vineyards and their location on the king's highway allowed them to charge very high tolls and taxes on those who traveled through the land. Now the Edomites had been one of Israel's enemies since the very beginning in Exodus. In the Old Testament, Israel had many, many enemies. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Aram, Tyre, Sidon, Phoenicia, Moab, Ammon, But Edom is the subject of more prophecies than any of these. Isaiah 11, 21, Jeremiah 25 and 49, Ezekiel 25 and 35, Amos 1, Malachi 1, Joel 4, Lamentations 4. Those are all prophecies against the nation of Edom. And now we have an entire book against the nation of Edom. Now the Edomites are the descendants of Esau the son of Isaac, the older twin brother of Jacob. Genesis 25 to 32 tells us their story. It was one of a tense relationship to say the least. Esau would be later renamed Edom, and Jacob, of course, is renamed Israel. And their descendants would replay that tense relationship for hundreds of years. We see in Numbers that when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, he wanted to pass through Edom on their way to Canaan. But Edom refused. Edom fought against King Saul and was later conquered by King David. In the days of King Jehoshaphat, Edom joined with the Moabites and the Ammonites to attack Judah. They rebelled against King Jehoram in Second Chronicles. And again in the days of King Ahaz, they directly attacked Judah. And the most famous Edomite, King Herod, would later order the killing of all males under two years old, trying to prevent the coming of the Messiah. But it was during this invasion at the time of Obadiah's writing that whatever familial bond between those two nations was totally shattered. Still in verse 1, we've heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. 
God is declaring war on Edom. And in verse 2, God says, Edom will be humiliated. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew verb for I will make is natan, which means to personally deliver explicitly like a sheriff delivering a summons. It's in the perfect tense, meaning that God's future action is so certain that Obadiah treats it as if it's already happened. And it is God himself who is bringing judgment against Edom. And verses 3 through 14 highlight two themes. Two themes that we'll begin to unpack here starting with verse 3. The first is pride and the second one is hate. Let's first start with pride. Look at verse 3. God calls out Edom's arrogance. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Pride is idolatry. It's idolatry of self. Pride is man's inclination to live for self-gratification, self-glorification, self-exaltation. It decentralizes God. It's deceptive in that it makes us think things about ourselves that just simply are not true. Many Christian commentators have regarded pride as the mother of all sin. The Hebrew word here used is zadun, which means to stand alone in need of no one, to have an unreasonable or inordinate opinion of oneself, someone who is extremely presumptuous. It's used only 11 times in all of Scripture. And a warning here, it does not end well for any that it describes. Deuteronomy 17, 12. The man who acts zadun by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor listens to the judge, that man shall die. Proverbs 11.2, when Zodun comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 13.10, through Zodun comes nothing but strife. Although we are created in the image of God, we are born in the image of Adam. In our depravity, we are hostile to God. We want to become our own God. God gave Moses the law because of a man's desire to do his own thing. We want to be sovereign. We want to be self-governed. We want to be self-determined. And our pride is so hostile to God that we can't even please him. But where does this pride come from? Galatians 5.17 tells us, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to to one another. Our nature is to promote ourselves instead of giving glory to God. Burke Parsons, teaching professor at Ligonier and senior pastor at St. Andrews, says this, the only way that we can become humble is if the Spirit humbles us. And that hurts. He continues, if we It convicts us. It challenges us. It shows us our sin. It shows us our blind spots. It shows us how evil and miserable we are. And it shows us how totally depraved that we are. We have to pray for humility, he says. And then he concludes, and that is a scary prayer. As a consequence of their pride, Edom must be destroyed. But what caused Edom's pride? Four reasons, starting in verse 3. Let's look at verse 3. First, where they lived, their geography. 
You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The capital of Edom was the ancient city of Petra, a city carved into the rock perched high atop a 5,000-foot mountain. The name Petra, of course, means rock. And the only way in and out of the city was through these crevices that traversed for miles, and these things were called six. The six were a natural defense. And Edom presumed, because of the six and their high altitude among the stars, they boastfully declared, Who can bring me down to earth? The arrogance is reminiscent, I think, of Goliath before his battle with David, mocking God. Proverb, uh, Psalmist writes in chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Edom believed that they were indestructible due to their geography, but they were not. The sovereign hand of God reaches high into the mountain and brings them down. The second reason is their wealth. Notice verses 5 and 6. If thieves come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they at least not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. Obadiah notes that thieves steal only what they need or what they can carry out. But on this day, the day of Edom's destruction, the day that Esau will be ransacked and pillaged, nothing will remain. Edom will not, the, Edom will not have even the honor of a common thief, and they will take everything belongs to Edom. Geography, wealth. Now the third reason for their pride, their alliances. Look at verse 7. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. The diplomatic relationships that Edom had with their surrounding nations gave them a sense of security. They had placed their trust in all of these foreign alliances. They had peace with their neighbors, but their arrogance makes them blind and oblivious to the truth. And they were too arrogant to even notice what was coming their way. Geography, wealth, alliances, and finally, their wisdom. Notice verses 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Taman was a prominent city in the ancient world, and like Athens in the New Testament, it was a center of wisdom. You'll remember Job, one of his three wise counselors was Eliphaz, who came from the city of Taman. But wisdom comes from the Lord. Proverbs 1 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Authentic wisdom comes from reliance upon God. 
believing that his way is the right way. And Paul calls this hidden wisdom of God. But the false wisdom of Edom was grounded not in trust for the Lord, but in their insatiable desire for pursuit and power. Edom was so focused on the things of the world that they were blinded from the truth. Their high altitude fortress offered no protection. Their wealth was useless. Their wisdom was false and their friends whom they thought they could trust led the attack. Their pride consumed them. Pride, the mother of all sins. Paul even hints that Satan's sin was pride. In his first letter to Timothy, writing on the qualifications of an elder, Paul writes of the elder that he must be not a new convert so that he will not become prideful and fall to the condemnation incurred by Satan. Isaiah writes of the fall of Satan, which is very similar to the fall that we just read in Obadiah. Listen to Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of, of morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You have been weakened by the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will, ra- I will raise my throne above the stars. And I will sit on the mount assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, says Satan. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, Isaiah says, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. God is angry. God is angry at Edom for their pride. But verses 10 through 14 open the theme to the second reason God is going to destroy them. Verse 10, because of their violence against their brother Jacob. Not only did Edom gloat and rejoice over the destruction of Judah, but they also became active participants. Their hatred towards Judah resulted in them becoming violent. And because of that, God says in verse 10, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. All of us here today are enemies by nature of God. Yet God loves us even in our sin. When we're not thankful to him, He is merciful to us. When we have sinned against Him, He has never returned evil for evil. I have a good friend who's in Christian counseling. He told me a story one day of a man seeking divorce from his wife. And the man comes in, says, My wife isn't unfaithful. She hasn't left me or anything like that. I just don't love her anymore. And my friend says, Well, Bible says you must love your husbands, love your wife, so you really have no choice in the matter. And the man responded, you don't get it. I don't even want to be around her. I don't want to live in the same house with her. Well, my friend says, well, why don't you do a trial separation? You move next door. And the man says, well, what good is that going to do? Well, she'll be your neighbor. And Bible says to love your neighbor. (laughs) The man grew frustrated even more, said, you don't get it. It's not that I don't want to be near her. I can't stand the sight of her. I have nothing but enmity in my heart towards her. And my friend says, oh, she's your enemy. And the man says, yes. And the counselor responded, Bible says, love your enemy. And that counseling session ended, I'm told. <laughs> Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Notice the tense of the word love here. It's a verb, it is not a noun. We are to do good to those who hate you and bless those that curse us. That's very, 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 very difficult in today's culture. But Jesus commands us to love our enemies for a reason. Matthew 5, 45, the next verse. So that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. We're to choose mercy, not vengeance. God is an avenging God. God promises to make unjust things just. But God warns us in Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Edomites had forgotten that the people of Judah were their family. Their jealousy of Israel, supplanting Esau as the one who received Isaac's blessing all those years ago, grew into hatred and violence. And in verse 10, God says, because of that violence against your brother, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. He will destroy them for the violence against his people. Verses 11 through 14 use the phrase, on that day, nine times, which refers to the day that Jerusalem was destroyed. On that day, Edom did nothing to aid his brother. Sometimes doing nothing is a great sin. In Numbers chapter 32, God has told the Israelites to subdue the land, but he warns them in verse 23, but if you will not do so, if you will not subdue the land, if you do nothing, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. In late May of this year, the archbishop of San Francisco, Salvador Cordio Leon, um, chose not to do nothing. Instead, he sent a letter to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi telling her, you are not to present yourself for communion because you've not publicly repudiated your position on abortion. We need this kind of courage from our religious leaders, but we need this kind of courage more so for ourselves. We must take a stand against the false doctrines being taught in our churches and the immorality that exists in our country today because if we do nothing, we're not holding to our doctrine. But not only did Edom do nothing to aid his brother, he actively participated in the fall of Judah. He gloated over Judah's distress and calamity. He took advantage of Judah's vulnerability during the invasion. They invaded themselves, looting what they could, and he... Edom joined in on the violence, created roadblocks, prevented people from escaping, and when they did escape, they even captured and killed some of those. And God holds them accountable. Verse 15, Obadiah announces their destruction will occur on the day of the Lord. For on that day, the Lord draws near and on all the nations. And as you have done, It will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. They gloated, they invaded, they looted, they captured, they killed. They rejected in the calamity, uh, but they rejoiced in the calamity. Uh, They celebrated the destruction of their enemy. 
They took advantage of Israel's vulnerability and then they joined in on the violence and God has had enough. God promises that those same deeds that Edom committed against Judah would now come upon themselves. Jeremiah says in 51, 56, that Yahweh is a God who keeps account of human actions and he will repay in full. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. Their destruction will occur on that great day, the day of the Lord, and that day, according to Obadiah, is near. And need we be reminded that that same principle applies to us even today, that we must show mercy to others, and that does include our enemies. But notice in verse 16, there's a shift. There's a shift from singling out Edom to now including all the nations. All the nations that will be destroyed. Obadiah is saying that all nations that act like Edom will face God's justice. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. The Edomites' drunken revelry on the holy temple mount of Jerusalem results in all the nations being forced to drink the cup of God's wrath. We see this metaphor back in Jeremiah 25, verse 15. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. The descendants of of Esau represent those among humanity that persist in rebellion against God and they will not survive the final judgment. If then, Edom is destroyed because of their rejection of God, how then does Jacob, the representative of those who belong to God, how do Jacob's descendants embody the principle of God's undeserved, unmerited grace in his work of redemption. Turn with me to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. And we'll start in verse 10 and we'll get through maybe about 14. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 10. But there was... Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good nor bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And then Paul says, just as it is written, and then he quotes from the prophet Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Which begs the question, why? Why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? The Hebrew word here for hate is sane, which means to count someone as an enemy and to treat him as an enemy. This is not the same word that Jesus uses in the New Testament when he tells his disciples, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, brother, sister, 
and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That word is the Greek word miso, which has a connotation of loving something less. But the Hebrew word here, sane, is not like that at all. In this context, hatred is not an emotion, but rather it is a covenant action. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. One man says the word hate does not mean hate. It means to love less. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I loved less. I believe that the term hate is correctly and properly translated. The fact is, God loved Jacob, and he did not love Esau. God chose Jacob, but he did not choose Esau. God blessed Jacob, but he never blessed Esau. God's mercy followed Jacob all the way of his life, even to the last, but God's mercy never followed Esau. He permitted him to go on and on in his sins and to prove that dreadful truth, Esau, have I hated Paul continues in Romans with verse 14. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Mercy is a divine prerogative. God chose to love Jacob. Why did he leave Esau in his sin and harden his heart? Paul says, not because of works, not because of him who calls. In both actions, God is righteous. He is perfectly just. We're all sinners. And God owes mercy to none of us. And withholding his mercy is not injustice. God did not love Esau less than Jacob. He counted Jacob an enemy. Being the oldest of the twins, Esau was to receive the patriarchal blessing. To possess the divine birthright and to be part of the chosen seed that was given to Abraham and to Isaac was a great blessing. Listen to God describing that blessing as he, as he uh, said to Abraham, I will be with you and bless you for you and your descendants I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and I will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Esau was certainly aware of that promise. How foolish then, how foolish is he to reject the blessing? Esau rejected his birthright when he sold it to his deceiving brother Jacob for food. And in doing so, rejected his redemption. By rejecting his birthright, Esau and his descendants are doomed to destruction. When the Bible speaks of God's loving someone, it means he has chosen to favor them. And God chose to favor Abraham with grace. God frequently identifies himself in Scripture as the God of Abraham and Isaac. But 17 times he adds the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by that fact, there's got to be some significance to that title, the God of Jacob. Turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. As you're turning there, uh, move your way to chapter, uh, I mean, verse 24. 
And Genesis 32 records a story about Jacob the night before he is to confront Esau, whom he feared. And during the night, we read, an angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. In verse 25, when the angel saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched Jacob's hip. And Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with the angel. Then the angel said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This fierce, agonizing struggle between the representative of God and Jacob is all about a struggle. A struggle for a blessing from God. Jacob is fighting with all he has, fighting to earn his own salvation, even to the point of becoming crippled. But this is not the first time that we've seen Jacob seek a blessing. After taking advantage of his brother Esau and gaining the birthright, we see Jacob and his mother Rebekah in a sad story scheming to deceive Isaac into passing on that patriarchal blessing, not to the older son, but to Jacob. In Genesis 27, Isaac is old and blind, and he tells Esau to go hunting, kill an animal, and cook his favorite dish. And it's during that meal that the old Isaac planned to give the patriarchal blessing to his firstborn, Esau. But Rebekah overheard the conversation and then tells Jacob what's about to happen. She tells Jacob to hurry, go grab a couple of goats from the flock, and then she can cook his meal. And then Jacob can dress up like Esau. Do you see corruption in that? Rebecca is encouraging her son Jacob to take advantage of her other son's, uh, I mean of her husband's blindness, in order to steal the blessing from one son to the other. And Jacob goes along with his evil plot and outright lies to his father about being Esau. And then to make matters worse, Jacob tries to justify the deception by saying that he called on the assistance of God. We see that when Isaac... Um, when Isaac asked Jacob, um, whom he thought was Esau, how were you able to go out and hunt and kill and cook the meal so quickly? And Jacob replies, the reason I could get the food so quickly is because God helped me do it. And this is the guy that God chose to show grace to? And what follows next is the blind, failing, and old Isaac transferring the patriarchal promise that had been given to him by his father Abraham to this treacherous, lying, thieving, corrupt, undeserving son. How can this happen? How can one so despicable be the recipient of God's blessing and the representative of God's chosen people? The answer, sovereign grace. There was nothing, absolutely nothing in Jacob that could make God love him. In fact, there was everything about Jacob that would make God hate him. But God, who is infinitely gracious, chose to love Jacob. So the promise given to Abraham and then passed on to Isaac now goes to this undeserving son, Jacob, so that the grace of God's redemptive promise may be made clear. Giving mercy to those who do not deserve it is God's covenant of grace. Going back to Jacob's all-night wrestling match, With the angel of God, Jacob demands that the angel of the Lord give him the blessing. 
But before the angel would concede to that request, before God will bless Jacob in that struggle, the angel asks him a question. What is your name? Now there's something significant in Hebrew about a name. Revealing one's name. And part of the significance here is that the angel is asking Jacob's name, is that he's asking Jacob to cry uncle. He's asking Jacob to surrender. Now the one wrestling with Jacob that night on this occasion is not blind. He knows perfectly well who Jacob is. Jacob cannot all of a sudden go put on his brother's stinky clothes and act like he's Esau. This time, though, he does not say, I am Esau. This time he says, I am Jacob. He surrendered. Last week we saw that surrendering your life to Christ is one of the keys to being made complete. Jacob surrendered his life and he is now complete. Jacob, the name which means stealer and deceiver, acknowledging that he is that. He is a stealer. He is a deceiver. He is a sinful man. He repents when he says, I am Jacob. And God changed him. That's when God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means, may God prevail. And the descendants of Jacob did prevail. Turn back to Obadiah, verse 17. On Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. God is promising that Judah will be restored, but the enemies of God will be destroyed. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Judah will be restored, and the enemies of God will be destroyed. And God stamps that with his signature. The Lord has spoken. Now verses 19 through 20 read like a geography lesson. This is the description of the promised land. The places listed all surround Jerusalem. Negev to the south, Shephelah to the west, Ephraim and Samaria to the north, Gilead to the east. He's promising the Israelites that all the, round, uh, all the lands around Jerusalem will be given to Israel again. Now many have questioned why this short book is even in the canon of Scripture. Scripture is the unfolding of God's redemption for fallen man, and Obadiah has painted a very grim picture for the Edomites. But in verse 21, verse 21, we see hope for Edom, despite their pending divine judgment. Verse 21, the deliverers, or some of your... Um, translations may say saviors, the deliverers who will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. That reference, deliverers, savior, in verse 21 is the same idea of the judges back in the book of Judges who saved and delivered Israel from their oppressors throughout the book of Judges. Judges 2.16, for instance, the Lord raised up judges who delivered or saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. The saviors, the deliverers on Mount Zion will judge Mount Esau. But this is pointing to something more than their destruction. 
As we said earlier, before we read the book, Obadiah does not give any hint of when this book was written. But the arrangement of the 12 books of the Minor Prophets follow a chronological pattern, starting with Hosea around the 8th century and ending with Malachi around the 4th century. And Obadiah is, of course, positioned right after the book of Amos. So turn with me back just a few pages, back to the very end of Amos. We're going to look at chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old. Now, you'll remember that King David um, obviously lost his, his uh, throughout the generations, uh, the, the monarchy was gone and there was no... There was no um, descendant of David on the throne. But Judah and Jerusalem fell during that time. But in the Davidic covenant, God promises that David's throne would one day be restored and it would be eternal. God would restore that fallen booth of David with the coming of the Messiah. And here's the key verse in Amos, Amos verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, is listing Edom among the nations who bear my name. Edom bears the names of God. O. Palmer Robertson writes on these verses in his book, uh, uh, Christ and the Prophets, Just as Israel was marked as the chosen of the Lord because God's name was called upon them. So now Esau, Edom, experienced that same privilege in connection with the reestablishment of the fallen booth of David. So despite the severity of the judgment pronounced on Edom and Esau by Obadiah, the hope of the salvation is still theirs. For God's raising up of saviors, for Israel must eventuate climactically in the restoration of the fallen booth of David and the appearance of the long-awaited Messiah. And the coming of this Messiah is the hope for a restored cosmos that will include even the likes of a person like Esau and a nation like Edom. When he finally comes, the kingdoms will be the Lord's. Remember earlier we talked about a um, cup of wrath against the nations that they had to drink. Well, there's another example in the New Testament of this same cup of wrath. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read that Jesus told his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And then he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prays to his Father, let this pass cup. Jesus does not want to drink the cup of wrath for our sins. Forgiveness of sin is costly. The only question, as R.C. Sproul said one time, the only question is to who will pay for it. Jesus paid for it on the cross. He took on our sin. He took on the full wrath of God for our sin. But in exchange, he gave us his perfect 
righteousness. And because of that, we bear his name and become children of God. We're not accepted into God's family by birth. We're not accepted into God's family by doing good. There's only one way to be accepted into God's family. The Apostle John wrote that Jesus came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion, but a birth that comes only from God. But not everyone is a child of God. And that's the message of Obadiah. Reject God, reject the person of Jesus Christ, and there will be eternal destruction. Believe in God, believe that Jesus showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. If you do that, you will experience the grace of God and live eternally in heaven with the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We know that one day we will be raised to be united with your son. We know that these things in life do matter and that we will give an account of ourselves to the one who will judge us. I pray for the one here this morning who's never surrendered to Christ, calling on him to be Lord of their life. I pray that they would understand that they're not capable of saving themselves, but that they would believe in the promise of God that those who trust in Jesus, who believe in Jesus, he is their only source of salvation. And I pray for the Christian here today that this text in Obadiah would have an effect on us to think carefully about what we do, what we think, what we say. You are sovereign over all things, Lord, including our lives. And we take comfort in that. Teach us and train our hearts in the way we should go. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.